Hello and welcome to the Plus Podcast. I'm Rachel Thomas. And I'm Marianne Freiberger. The COVID-19 pandemic has led to bad health outcomes in more than one way. While people are getting sick with the virus, other conditions have remained untreated and the NHS waiting lists are growing as a result. In this podcast, we report on a recent event at which clinicians specialising in cardiovascular disease met mathematicians to figure out how to best deal with the backlog. The virtual study group was organised by the Virtual Forum for Knowledge Exchange in Mathematical Sciences, or VCHEMS for short, and of course it happened online. Marianne, you sat in on one of the Zoom sessions of this unusual brainstorming event. What was that like? Well, I was really struck by the excitement and positivity that was in the air at that Zoom session. Um, There was a real sense that the foundation had been laid for work that could result in tools for clinicians to use to make really important decisions on how to organize their workflow and how to treat people. I found that virtual study group so interesting that I went and told a few friends about it. And the first question everybody always asks is, why did they ask mathematicians to help with this problem? And what does mathematics have to do with it? And to answer this question, we spoke to two participants of the virtual study group. The first is Ramesh Nadaraja, who is a BHF Clinical Research Fellow at the University of Leeds and a Cardiology Registrar at Leeds General Infirmary. And the second person we spoke to is Jessica Enright, who is a lecturer in Computer Science at the University of Glasgow. We started by asking Ramesh to describe the challenges cardiovascular medicine faces at the moment. As we know, COVID has had a huge impact on the country and on individuals since it, um, since it first struck in the first part of last year. Obviously, from the point of view of the health service, it had to be significantly restructured to try to meet the demands uh, that COVID placed upon it. And though this was um, relatively successful in trying to improve care for COVID patients, of course, that meant that other services had to be affected. In terms of cardiovascular disease and heart disease in particular, though obligatory inpatient work for the sickest patients continued, uh, a number of elective procedures to try and help improve heart function had to be deferred, and the amount of opportunity to see patients in clinic was significantly restricted as we had to change from a predominantly face-to-face consultation model to more of a telephone consultation model. We do know from publications in the intervening period that certain diagnostics such as echocardiography, so that means ultrasound scans of the heart, uh, were reduced by more than half in their number. We also know that in terms of potentially life-saving procedures, We were down about 45,000 nationally over the course of the three months, March to May 2020. Now, obviously, heart disease is an important problem because it has such severe outcomes. Ramesh told us that when it comes to heart failure, so that's when the heart is unable to pump blood effectively to meet the body's requirements, about 50% of people die within five years after the condition first set in. And for aortic stenosis, so that's a narrowing of the heart's aortic valve, about 50% of people die within two years of first having symptoms. Yet over the course of a few months of COVID, nationally, about 4,500 potentially life-saving procedures for aortic stenosis could not be carried out. And obviously, if people can't get access to the services they need, then that has an important impact not only on them, but also on the health service as a whole. 
Well, given the severity of the clinical situation we, we, we stand facing us, um, this of course is a significant issue. And we know that there's going to be a significant excess burden that will come onto heart services over the forthcoming months and years. We already had a significant number of patients that needed to be seen, waiting lists in the NHS were um, well publicised before COVID. But now we're going to have more patients, given that there will be the patients who will have naturally developed the diseases anyway. There will be excess patients from patients who did not, uh, sorry, could not be treated because of restructuring the healthcare service. And there will be excess patients in terms of um, changes that have occurred to people's lifestyles during this period and people that could not receive treatment for relatively simple things like heart attacks because they stayed away from hospital for fear of COVID. So given that the prognosis in these conditions can be quite poor, we know that without making some changes to the way we provide healthcare, patients individually will come to harm. There's only a certain number of doctors, nurses, technicians, hospitals and rooms. And I don't think simple solutions like just working harder are really going to cut it, given the whole service individually, regionally and nationally is under strain. So the main questions we were hoping this collaboration with mathematicians could help with is giving a better understanding of how to improve the ability to access services for healthcare uh, for, for, for people who require healthcare by looking at both the structure of healthcare and also the pathways for individual patients so that we could have a more nuanced and effective way of changing ways of practice or changing pathways or altering our clinical priorities. The virtual study group on cardiovascular waiting lists was organised by the Virtual Forum for Knowledge Exchange in Mathematical Sciences. That's an initiative of the International Centre for Mathematical Sciences, the Isaac Newton Institute, the Newton Gateway to Mathematics and the Knowledge Transfer Network. What happened is that the Newton Gateway had wanted to look at NHS waiting lists as a whole, but realised it was more achievable to look at one issue that could then be extrapolated out. So Claire Merritt from the Newton Gateway approached clinicians and got them on board, and then she worked with Jessica Enright and other mathematicians to get things rolling. We've been to such virtual study groups before, and they are proper brainstorming events in the truest sense of the word. They begin by the experts in the area that's being focused on, in this case, the clinicians with the cardiovascular expertise, they begin by those experts giving the mathematicians a quick lowdown on the area and the problems they're facing. Then there's a discussion about what kind of questions the study group will try and attack. That's a hugely important part of the process. And then the group splits into smaller groups where people throw their expertise at the problem that they've decided to tackle. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened at this virtual study group too. And as Jessica Enright told us, the experience is both daunting and exciting. It is, well, for me, it's very fun, but it's very intense. Um, this event, I think, ran over three days. Uh, I've been at the events of this kind that run over three to five days, and they are, you have a good time while you're doing them, but man, you are tired at the end of each day, and you're tired at the end of the whole thing, because it's, it's uh, a lot of mental work to be kind of engaged and, and on and paying attention and thinking thinking hard thoughts and trying to listen to other people's hard thoughts 
um, all day, every day. And the first couple of times I, I've done these study groups, it's also quite scary, right? Like you turn up and uh, someone presents to you this problem that you don't know anything about. Uh, and it's not even really a well-defined problem yet. And there are lots of really smart people there who have lots of ideas about how to address it. Um, and the first couple of times I did this, I found it a little bit scary, uh, but now I'm used to feeling totally ignorant <laughs> at the start. And, and so I, it's not so intimidating anymore. We have this principle, I think, um, that a colleague calls mutually assured ignorance, that we just kind of all <laughs> accept that we're all brand new to the question and we're all gonna say dumb things. And this is, this is part of the process. Uh, it can also be a bit of an emotional roller coaster because <laughs> on the first day, mostly you look at the problem and you spend, you spend time thinking of how are we gonna approach this mathematically? How can we pose a version of this problem in a mathematical way so that we as mathematicians can address it? Um, and so by the end of the first day, normally you're feeling pretty hopeful and pretty good because you've defined some problems. And then you start on the second day and you try and make some progress, but then you find, oh, it didn't work the way that you hoped that it did, or the data that you would need to do that approach isn't available, or the problem just feels so big or something. So usually at some point in the second day, there's a moment where you think, none of this is ever going to work. This is, <laughs> this is, what am I doing here? This was a terrible idea. Uh, I'm, I'm just letting down these people with this really important problem. But of course, that's not true. That's just part of the process. By the end of the second day and going into the third day, then usually, at least for me, it sort of starts to come together because then you're looking at the point where you start to collate and put together the things that your group has done. Uh, and once you do that, you realize, wow, like we've actually done quite a lot of work here. We've done some valuable things. Uh, and by the end, the end of the last day, I think usually you're feeling pretty optimistic and thinking about, about next steps. But it's, uh, it's definitely an intense process, at least for me. As we'll hear from Ramesh a little later on in this podcast, there are definitely reasons to be optimistic about what will come out of this particular virtual study group. But first, I asked Jessica the big question. How can mathematics help with solving a question regarding medical issues and organizational questions regarding the NHS? After all, the mathematicians involved aren't experts in either. <laughs> uh, there are lots of different ways, I think. Um, lots of different things that we might want to model that could help out. So we could think about modeling of flows of patients or referrals into and out of the system. Uh, at a finer scale, we might think about modeling a particular person's progression through a disease, so how they become more unwell or, or how treatment can, can make them better, uh, and therefore then they are able to leave the system. Um, I guess one thing to say is that there's an enormous range of detail uh, of how mathematics might help. So it goes from everything from back of the envelope calculations that just mathematicians are used to thinking about that can give you a general idea of, of what's going on through to enormously detailed models that will give kind of a much more realistic uh, detailed uh, picture. Um, and in addition to that different detail scale, there's different temporal or spatial scales. So we might want to model a situation that's happening over years and years, or we might want to model a situation over a much shorter time scale just during the pandemic or during and after. Um, similarly, we might want to think about a whole country or we might want to think about just one trust or just one, uh, just one hospital. So a lot of different ways, modeling the whole system all the way down to a, an individual uh, moving through a particular illness. Jessica herself ended up working on finding a way to model for the country as a whole, 
how patients with cardiovascular disease move through the waiting list and into the various treatment options that come after being on the waiting list. And Jessica and her colleagues presented the system as a network and then saw if they could simulate the way people flow from one node in the network to another. Here's Jessica to explain more. So the idea here is that we have these different uh, different states that a, a person can be in. So these different boxes. So we have, you know, we have people who are out wandering around in the community um, who have some underlying cardiac disease and they might flow into a waiting list at some rate. So we have some equation that describes the, the temporal pattern of their movement onto, onto a waiting list. And then we combine uh, using a series of differential equations the number of people on that waiting list with other factors like how fast people are moving out of the waiting list into treatment or onto a different category on the waiting list. So if you want to get refined about it, and I think it's important in this case that we do, while people are on the waiting list with a particular kind of cardiac disease, their disease might get worse, right? So we need to take account of the fact that it's not just somebody in the state um, pre-waiting list, during waiting list, after waiting list, right? While someone is on the waiting list, they might be on the waiting list with mild disease, on the waiting list with progressing disease, and eventually on the waiting list about to have serious emergency disease. Um, and they can move between those states based on how long they are on the waiting list. So we combine uh, in a differential equation style of way, um, a series of expressions that tell us under different assumptions, how quickly people will move through these different states and therefore what the demand will be. But then that's just the beginning of demand, right? There's a whole supply side of what is the supply um, as in the availability of different uh, procedures and beds and staff time that will let the system address that demand over time. Okay, so we can see here how this kind of model can be useful. If you can simulate how demand on cardiovascular healthcare will evolve, and you can simulate how available supply can deal with the demand, then you can start playing around with ways of changing the supply to see if that would meet the demand in a better way. Is that the kind of thing that clinicians are hoping will come out of the mathematician's work? Yes, that's exactly the kind of thing that they're hoping will come out of this workshop. Now, one very useful outcome would be to get some insight on a national level of exactly what the problems are and what the solutions might be in a sort of general sense. But as Ramesh told us, the models could also be built into a tool, like for example, an app for NHS trusts to use every day on the ground in practice. But also I think on a local level, a model that could be developed and created into some sort of interactive software or app that could be used by individual trust to plug their data into to come up with the best solution for their area would be extremely helpful because of course we know that there are regional variations both in the resources available to different healthcare providers but also the demographics of the patient population. Now to have a, an app like this would obviously be amazing but the study group isn't just about the practical outcomes. One really interesting thing that Ramesh said is that the hackathon, as he called it, helped him see things in a new way. Well, it was, it was, uh, it was very exciting and very interesting coming at it from somebody who's predominantly a clinician, because obviously 
uh, one become can become a bit blinkered in the way one thinks and actually explaining these problems and pathways to people who are not part of the NHS system led to quite interesting and enlightening conclusions because they very much came at things from a different point of view and I felt they were much better at seeing the wood from the trees than we are as clinicians where we can get a bit bogged down in the individual patient level details mm. and actually I felt that they were very good our mathematics colleagues at identifying the pressure points in the system probably than we were I also felt that on a second point, the groups worked very well together. Having groups of people talking about um, the situations made me feel that ideas really started snowballing off each other. And also the different mathematicians in each group all had different skill sets within obviously the broad church that is, math, that is maths and mathematics. And I felt they, that they brought different skills to the party. And actually by collaborating, they came and had a more varied range of solutions by the end of it. Do you have an example of something that the mathematicians identified that maybe you hadn't seen so clearly beforehand? Yeah, I think in terms of uh, the outcome that was sort of brought to my attention by the mathematicians was, uh, for example, when we originally looked at the problem of heart failure, so the inability of the blood to, of the heart, sorry, to pump blood efficiently around the heart, causing symptoms and affecting prognoses. My original thought when we went into this was that the problem might be predominantly one of waiting lists of, of uh, people waiting a long time to be seen. And that led to me thinking about things more in sort of a, a, a numbers way and a national regional level. Whereas actually when, when our mathematics colleagues looked at the pathway and delved deeper into the available, publicly available data, they realized it wasn't so much a problem of numbers, but more a problem for individuals. They looked at things more on an individual level and realized that because the prognosis was relatively poor, especially for certain heart failure patients, it wasn't so much about the overall numbers. It was more about understanding how to get uh, the right treatment or how to get the best access to the right treatment for the right patient. So actually it was a completely different way of looking at it to the one I'd originally walked into the meeting with. Oh, that's very surprising. So the mathematicians made him move away from looking at the problem in a quantitative way to instead look at it in a qualitative way. That's not what you'd expect at all. So it seems the clinicians think the virtual study group was useful. Oh, totally. Here's Ramesh again talking about the experience overall. I think the experience that really struck me was the enthusiasm everyone brought. Um, I really felt that from the point of view of our mathematicians, they really had this sense of wanting to make things better using their skills to improve the lives of people. And I felt that the shared goal we, we, we had was easily was much more easily attainable once we'd had this meeting together whereas before when I when I started this virtual script it seemed almost an insurmountable problem and that was quite a quite an enlightening experience for me. I, I was um, surprised how how quickly the progress could be made on these issues and I actually think there's that there's it uncovered a huge amount of um, scope that um, this sort of expertise could make real differences relatively quickly to um, real life situations. I would just say that I think these sorts of meetings and virtual groups are a really good idea. And I think the, uh, the, the thought process behind the Newton Institute um, to bring together um, mathematicians and domain experts to come up with practical solutions through mathematical techniques 
is a really great idea. And I think actually going forward, the NHS could do with this, not just in cardiovascular waiting lists and heart disease, but in multiple other areas. So I think it's an exciting area. And I think um, progress going forward would be very helpful in multiple areas. That was really inspiring hearing Ramesh talk about his experience of the virtual study group. So what's going to happen next? Well, as Jessica told me, everybody is really keen to produce some results very soon. So they are already talking to people who have, who have previously produced work that could be adapted to suit the particular problem. And the organizers of the virtual study group are also busy looking for funding to drive things forward. So this might be funding for a PhD student or for a postdoc who can work on these kind of problems. So we can hope that something is going to emerge soon. And when it does, we'll be sure to report on it. We've now come to the part of the podcast where we explore some maths in one minute. We've talked a lot about mathematical models and Jessica also gave us an idea of what one of the models she and her colleagues developed looks like. But for those who are still a bit hazy on the concept of mathematical model, let's look at this again. Rachel, can you please explain in one minute what is a mathematical model? Okay, let's start with an example, say my bank account. Here at the University of Cambridge, we get paid on the 26th of each month. So every month on that day, an amount of say X pounds arrives in my account. Now I know that over the following month, I will spend Y pounds, hopefully Y is less than X. This means that a month after payday, there are X minus Y pounds in my account. Assuming my salary and expenses don't change, then two months after payday, there'll be two times X minus Y pounds in my account. Three months after payday, there'll be three times X minus Y pounds in my account. And in general, N months after a payday, there'll be N times X minus Y pounds in my account. So what I've just constructed is a mathematical model that describes what happens in my bank account and gives me a prediction as to how much money I'll have in the future. Generally, a mathematical model is a mathematical expression or maybe a collection of mathematical expressions that describe a particular system or process and gives you a prediction of what it might do in the future. The system or process could be a pandemic or it could be the weather or as we've heard in this podcast, it could be the demand on the NHS. Models come with parameters in my example, the parameters that my model depends on are my salary X and my monthly expenses Y. Some parameters are easy to ascertain. So to find out my salary, I just look at my pay slip and I know the number I see isn't going to change much in the foreseeable future. Other parameters are harder to gauge. So to work out my monthly expenditure, I have to first collect some data on what I spend my money on. Also, of course, my expenditure could vary. And if that's the case, I need to take into account that variation in my prediction. So rather than saying in N months, I'll have N times X minus Y pounds in my account, I might be better off saying in N months, I'll have N times X minus Y pounds plus or minus some other parameter Z in my account, where Z is some other number I've estimated from observations of how my spending varies. The same goes for all models in general. They depend on parameters whose values must be estimated in some way. This can be really hard. For example, the models describing the spread of COVID-19 depend on things like the latent period, 
which is something you need to estimate from real data and which varies from person to person. When using a model to make predictions, any uncertainty about parameters needs to be taken account of so you know how accurate your predictions are likely to be, just as I did with my bank account example with that extra parameter Z. Finally, a model rests on its assumptions and usually simplifies whatever system it's modeling. So in my bank account example, it assumed I never received money from any other source other than my salary. If I only ever get small amounts for say my birthday or for Christmas from my mum, then that simplification is something I can live with. But if I'm a fantastic gambler on the stock market, then I might have made loads of money and I might have to make my model more complex to capture other sources of income. That's true in general, and it's really important you state what assumptions a model is based on when you talk about its predictions. Well, thank you very much. You've managed that in just one metaphorical minute, and it's taken us right up to the end of this PLUS podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the things that we've talked about in this podcast, then go to plus.maths.org. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye.